Hello, everybody. Welcome to this podcast. My name is Eamon Awinat, and with me, we have Fisher Fitz Randolph. Fisher, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is Fisher Fitz Randolph. I'm uh, 22 years old, and I'm a senior here at Colorado State University studying cultural anthropology. Awesome, awesome. Great to hear. So what do you have prepared today for us, Fisher? Well, yeah, first, I, I want to start off with a story and let that kind of frame the rest of this podcast. So there was once a, a young medical student working in Haiti, which is a very poor Caribbean island country. And this young student was working in Haiti, the poorest of the poor. And he remembers this one account that kind of had a, a pivotal moment in his life. He was driving through some mountainous roads and he turns a corner and he comes upon this scene where there's this old rusty beaten up truck been flipped over and there's just a carpet of mangoes spread out along the road. And, and clearly he recognizes there was an accident. Something, something's happened here. The truck crashed, all these mangoes spilled. But, but as he looked further, he saw there was a woman strewn about the mangoes too. Realized that she wasn't moving, she was dead. And as he's realizing these things, a police officer walks up and says, yes, the, the truck has crashed and the woman has died. There's nothing to see here, move along. And this young man who we come to find out is Paul Farmer has this epiphany, right? Where he goes, was this a freak accident or was there something a little bit more nefarious here? Were there some direct causes that contributed to this moment? Paul Farmer analyzed the situation and he realized this wasn't a freak accident. There were direct causes here to be blamed. And so as he kind of analyzed the situation, he, he looked at the roads and he said, these roads are in terrible condition. There, there are potholes that are inches, feet deep. There are, are steep cliffs where cars could tumble off. There's no signs. There's no maintenance. And he realized that the government had been quite neglectful in maintaining and repairing these roads. And he went a little bit further and he said, look at this old truck. Like this old truck surely has not been maintenanced in years. Who knows if the brakes are good? The, the tires are very flat, right? And he realized there was very, very deep poverty running through this country. And, and the owner of this truck, even if he wanted to, didn't have the means to, to make his truck safe to maintain his truck, to, to make it in operable condition. And then he looked at the poor woman who, who had died, obviously sitting in the back of this truck because of the, the accident. And he said, what was this woman doing driving in such a dangerous road with all these mangoes? And he, he came to find out that this woman would travel miles and miles and miles every single day on these dangerous roads uh, to sell mangoes, to make pennies so that she could feed her family. And so to Farmer, the death of the woman in the mango truck was no freak accident, right? It wasn't like a, a meteor just fell out of the sky and killed her. It, it wasn't a freak accident, right? It was no freak accident that the roads were so dangerous. It was no freak accident that the truck's owner didn't have money to maintain his truck. It was no freak accident that the peasant woman had to make this treacherous journey every single day to sell mangoes just so she and her family could eat. Paul Farmer recognized that all these circumstances had causes, and these causes in this situation was selfish people in power and a neglectful government and a failing economic system that was unwilling to care for the people who needed it the most. And Paul Farmer uses this term called structural violence. And he says that this woman was the victim of structural violence. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today in this podcast, uh, structural violence. My argument is that structural violence exists in this world all around us, but also it's our moral obligation as citizens to be aware of it and combat it. So first, I just want to take some time to define structural violence. I want to provide some examples to help bring this to life and how it's manifesting today before our eyes. Lastly, I just want to provide a brief path forward so we know how we, as everyday citizens, can help combat this structural violence. That was super insightful, a very, very riveting story. I think you definitely bring up a lot of great points. And I just wanted to ask you, how would you define structural violence? Structural violence can be defined as this. Uh, it's it's any time that a social or a cultural, economic, political structure perpetuates inequality or in, induces suffering, induces violence on people. 
So yeah, if we just break that word down, there's a structure, there's a system, there's an entity, and it is committing violence against either one person or a group of people. And let's talk about this idea of violence, right? Usually violence uh, in our minds is something, it's quick, it's instantaneous, right? If someone were to punch you in the shoulder, you would feel that pain instantaneously. You could observe the violence happening. But after three or four seconds, the, the, the violent moment is over, right? Structural violence also introduces this idea that violence can be more of a slow, creeping form of violence, right? It's less visible. So if we're running with the punching analogy, if someone punches you initially, that's quick, obvious, instantaneous violence that we're used to, right? But there's also a more subvert form of violence. Say someone were to pinch you on the arm once every five minutes for the rest of your life. For the first day or so, you probably wouldn't notice it that much. It might be annoying, but you wouldn't consider that violence, right? Well, after a couple months, your arm would be severely bruised. And after a year, it would become excruciating because this spot was constantly pinched over and over and over again. And so we see structural violence introduces this idea of systems committing violent acts against people, but not necessarily a quick, instant, violent thing like war, but something that's more subvert, something more that's prolonged. More, more prolonged, yeah. something that's creeping and, and under the surface that's hard to see. So at the end of the day, it simplified, it's a structure that's committing violence, either outrightly or more subvertly in ways we don't necessarily see. So bringing up some points, you know, that, that yeah, I would not like my arm getting pinched for <laughs> right. however long, five years, that does not seem fun. So could you just kind of bring up some examples and kind of bring to light about, you know, some different examples about structural violence? Totally. Yeah, so I mentioned the, the, the mango truck story, right? And in this situation, uh, Paul Farmer identified structural violence happening kind of at two levels, right? He said there was a neglectful government who, instead of using the money they received to repair the roads and build infrastructure for the citizens, they didn't. And, and we know that in Haiti, the government has corruption in, in, in many ways. And so the roads weren't repaired, and that came at the cost of the people. So that, that's one form of structural violence, systemic violence that might also be called too. The second form of structural violence that Paul Farmer notes is the failing economic system, right? These people were living in such deep poverty that in order to eat, they have to make this treacherous journey day by day. They have to drive this vehicle that they probably wish was in better condition, but they have no means to do so because of the failing economic provision and care. So those are what Paul Farmer identifies as structural violence. We also learned about this example from a former CSU grad student, John McGreary, and, and he really focused his graduate thesis on the way colonization and those forces acted as structural violence on the nation of Haiti. And he provides this example of how the French colonialists, right, that's the system, the structure, they came and they cut down a lot of the island or a lot of the trees on this island. And by cutting down these trees, they, they set up their plantations. But this in and of itself doesn't seem like a very violent act, right? They just they just cut down some trees, right? But we see the violent implications that this has had on the Haitian people for hundreds of years now. So once the trees were cut down, drought and famine came about, right? Because the ecosystem was completely disrupted. Even more than that, the, the people of Haiti didn't have any resources because this external force came and took all their timber, came and took all their palm trees, came and took all of these resource-rich trees. And lastly, when the trees were cut down, the soil became weaker. So when rains came, there were massive landslides that ended up killing many, many people. So we see this French colonialist system coming in and doing this act that doesn't seem that violent, right? Just cutting down some trees. But this form of structural violence ended up being quite violent, quite detrimental to the Haitian people. Right, right. And so if we come back to the United States, I guess, can you provide any examples of structural violence that are like, you know, here, like in our own country? Great question. Yeah. 
There's one example that I love that really illustrates structural violence here in America. It came from a podcast I listened to from Dr. Uh, Celine Gounder, and she talks about how the Navajo Nation here in America has some of the highest rates of COVID, right? So everyone knows COVID, the global pandemic is sweeping the world, but consistently the Navajo Nation over these past eight months or so has shown higher numbers than the rest of America. And, and she asks the question, why is this? And she ends up kind of outlining these couple major points, right? And she says the Navajo Nation has a complete not a complete, but a major lack of infrastructure. She reports that over 30% of people living in the Navajo Nation are without water, plumbing, or electricity. Wow. These standards are, are unacceptable in, in modern cities, right? If, if this was the case in Denver, the, the government would surely immediately fix this, right? Or, or private companies would come in. These just rates are not acceptable. But in Navajo Nation, the, the shoulder has been turned, the government, and people just haven't, haven't paid attention to this terrible, terrible thing. And, and just imagine if you were without water... How are you supposed to wash your hands to stay sanitary during COVID? It, it's just, it, it just makes sense, right? If you don't have water or electricity, you're at a higher risk of, of catching sickness, but especially COVID. We also know in the Navajo Nation, during the Cold War era, a lot of mining happened in that area. And so many of the water sources, many of the natural areas of that land have become destroyed by toxic runoff. So we have all this mining waste that's just been pumped into lakes and rivers and ponds and ecosystems. So a lot of the natural resources of the area, too, are, are poisoned by uh, this toxic runoff, right? This is another thing that makes people far more vulnerable to catching sickness. Uh, the last point she brings up is just over 175,000 people in the Navajo Nation have to drive over two hours to get to a grocery store. And once they show up at the grocery store, the food is high calorie, high fat. And, and this is just cascading into other problems like diabetes and obesity. But we see, right, that the Navajo Nation has been put into this area by the U.S. government. They've been relocated, right? And then this new area that they're in, uh, the system that the government has provided for them has left them extremely vulnerable. People don't have water. There's toxic waste everywhere, right? People have to drive two hours to get to food. And while these things don't seem like acts of violence in and of themselves, over years and years of that pinching motion, right, it comes to cause great stress on these people. And we're seeing a really tangible expression through the COVID rates. And I hope people could see that the COVID rates aren't higher there for no reason, right? The, the mango truck didn't spill because of a freak accident. Same thing with the cases in the Navajo Nation. This is not a freak accident. This isn't some weird genetic explanation. There are structural things happening here that needs to be looked at. Yeah, and you want to know something? It's extremely disappointing, but I'm not really shocked or yeah. surprised at this. You know? yeah. It's not anything new. So when you talk about structural violence, do you see it? prevalent or I guess enacted on by governments or more of like political bodies? Yeah, totally. So up to this point, I've mentioned, you know, how governments seem to be the main enactor of this structural violence. And I think it's true that governments are, are supposed to care for and lead the people and make these systems that make people benefit. And sometimes they don't. So the governments around the world are, are a great place to look, but it also happens in companies, in, in business enterprises as well. Here's an example that I love that really, really exemplifies that. In Alaska in, in uh, 1989, Exxon, uh, which was a, an oil petroleum company, had a giant spill in the Prince William Sound in Alaska. This is known as the Exxon Valdez spill. And there's a movie called Black Wave that did a really amazing job of just encapsulating what happened and the effects it had on the people. And in 1989, over 10 million gallons of oil spilled into this really delicate Alaskan ecosystem. And initially you look at this, right, and you go, okay, oil spills happen. They're, they're terrible and they're sad, but they're not necessarily a violent thing. They're, they're sad and they might disrupt the ecosystem, but how could this be violence, really? 
well, as, as we trace uh, the acts of this oil spill throughout the film, we find out that, yeah, the oil spill maybe didn't impact people immediately in a violent way, right? But the long-term damages were severe, right? That motion of being pinched over and over and over again came to produce some really severe consequences. And so, first off, the oil spill destroyed the ecosystem. And the people were initially able to adapt and be okay, but a lot of the people living in this area rely heavily on fishing for their jobs. And so if the ecosystem is destroyed, the, the whole fishing industry became destroyed. So people who have spent their whole lives fishing and their identity is wrapped up in fishing all of a sudden have lost all of that. And not just to mention the fish, but birds and other mammals in the area were also destroyed. And with the fishing industry gone, the economy became tanked. And so people slipped into deep poverty and people gained a lot of mental health and resiliency too from being in this beautifully natural area. And, and once the oil spill destroyed it, a lot of people lost mental health resiliency as well. And so we see, yeah, how, how this structure, right? Exxon, the, the oil company handled the situation. They tried to brush it off. They tried to say nothing was wrong. We're doing our best to clean it up, but they were honestly just doing a lot of lip service to the media and the people uh, of Prince William Sound really paid the price dearly. And so we see the structure, Exxon Valdez, committing violence in a not-so-obvious way, right? They, they spilled oil, and they didn't clean it up. But as you see this action of being pinched over and over again, it creates a very violent and a very destructive environment for people to live in, which causes severe, severe problems. Right, and Fisher, I think you definitely, throughout you know, the last couple of points you brought up, you brought up some definitely some great arguments and great examples of how structural violence is prevalent, not only in our country, but like around the world itself. So, you know, looking at all this stuff, what can somebody like myself, you know, like an average citizen or like an average Joe do when there are such high level issues? And, you know, what can I do to kind of help these acts stop? Yeah, great question. Great question. So I, I hope by defining structural violence and by giving these examples, we come to see that Structural violence is a really real thing that exists in this world. It's around us, right? We can't go as far to say that every source of poverty or every source of suffering is a cause of structural violence. I think that's taking it a little bit too far. I think there is human agency. I think that humans are responsible for a lot of things too, and you can change your situation. I think it's a mix. There is human agency, but there's also structural violence. But when it comes to identifying structural violence, I would encourage everyone to look around, look at the systems around us, right? Be aware of structural violence and the suffering that it's causing in people's lives. Also to, to conclude, I want to introduce this idea called the twofold path of care. This is something that I have kind of thought up through my research and stuff. And it's this idea of how do we end structural violence, right? You said it's this systemic high level issue how does everyday joes like you and i go about combating this right the first path of the twofold path of care is just do everyday acts of kindness do what you can day by day to help end suffering if you see someone hungry right you should buy them some food you can end suffering in that moment immediately and i think that's a morally good thing if your roommate uh, loses his job right take him in for a few days give him a place to stay right we we're called as humans to to, to love one another we're a team on this planet together right we need to help one another when we're suffering, right? But that doesn't address the high-level suffering, right? Here comes the second path of the twofold path of care. The second path says that we need to understand and be aware of these systems and structures and know which ones perpetuate suffering and which ones don't. And, and it's our moral obligation to know which structures do perpetuate suffering and not support those. We need to use our voice. We need to use our vote. We need to use our money and not give money to those systems, those structures, right? And we need to give our money, our votes, our resources towards structures that don't perpetuate suffering, that don't enact violence on people, no matter how subvert, how quiet it really is. 
So to close, I just want to end with this quote that I think wraps up this idea of the twofold path of care. It's from Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I'm going to read it and then I'll just have a brief remark. This is the quote. It says, any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually morbid religion awaiting burial. Martin Luther King's talking about religion here, and I think that's true, but I think we could apply this to everyday men and women too, right? Any man or woman that professes to be concerned about the souls of, of, of the men and women around them, the suffering and the well-being of men and women around them, but is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the, and the social conditions that are crippling them, is a person who is not being as effective as they could be. In the strong words of Martin Luther King is someone awaiting burial. So yeah, I, I hope this quote inspires us to go forward and enact that twofold path of care and suffering where we can and fight against uh, structural violence uh, in all the ways that we can. Thanks so much for having me, Eamon. Thank you, Fisher. Very insightful work and definitely food for thought for everybody out there listening. So thank you, Fisher, for coming on and uh, you're doing some great work. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Enjoy your day. Thanks.